Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is Healthy Options. Today, our guest is Deb Sol, who is an herbalist, biodynamic gardener, and teacher. She's the author of the Women's Handbook of Healing Herbs, and she's written a book, How to Move Like a Gardener, Planting and Preparing Medicines from Plants. Deb Sol was raised in a small town in western Maine and began organic gardening at the age of 16. It was at that time that she started studying the medicinal uses of herbs. She received a BA in human ecology from College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, and she also has lived in Nepal for a time. And while there, she lived near three Tibetan monasteries and was deeply moved by what she experienced as the Tibetan people's commitment to ease physical ailments and emotional imbalance through the use of plants and spiritual practice. Her own faith in the healing qualities of plants and her love of gardening let Deb Sol to found Avena Botanical Herbal Hypothecary in 1985. And since then, she has devoted her life to working with and understanding the healing benefits that organic gardens and medicinal plants can provide for individuals, families, and also to vital pollinators such as bees and butterflies. As a practicing herbal consultant, Deb uses nourishing herbs, flower remedies, whole foods, and meditation. Avena Botanical maintains a three-acre medicinal garden medicinal gardens in Rockport, Maine, which for the past 29 years have been certified organic by the Maine Organic Farmers and Growers Association. And in 2011, Avena became the first farm in Maine to be certified by Demeter USA as a biodynamic farm. So welcome to Healthy Options, Deb Thank Saul. Thanks, Rhonda. Happy to be here with you. This is so wonderful that you were able to, uh, to, to find time to uh, make your way to Orinow. I mean, uh, Orland. Where the heck are we? <laughs> Orland, Maine. Yeah, here we are. Let's do it. So um, you have been a, an organic farmer for many years, and now you're doing biodynamics. What, what is biodynamics? And, and, and people want to know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So biodynamic gardening is an initiative that came out of the world of Rudolf Steiner's brilliance. And Rudolf Steiner... Um, is probably most known in this part of the world for the creator of Waldorf education. So Rudolf Steiner was a spiritual scientist born in the 1860s in Austria, and he um, some of his formal training as a scientist was studying Goethe, who was a very famous botanist. So Steiner is known as a spiritual scientist because he's well-trained in the sciences, but also he was known to be clairvoyant, so he had really a gift of seeing, shall we say, into the spiritual worlds, into the other worlds. And after World War One in Europe, a lot of farmers who already were practicing, um, had a spiritual understanding from Steiner's perspective, which is called anthroposophy, they came to Steiner and they said, you know, after the war, we are really, our, our fields are really suffering, that the, the fertility of our soils is really down, our seed viability is really down, the health of our animals is really diminished. We really need help here. And out of that really, shall we say, desperate request from a number of farmers, Steiner um, created what is known as the agricultural course or the agricultural lectures. He created eight lectures that he proceeded to give to a group of um, invited farmers and people who are really deeply um, connected to a spiritual practice. Um, and out of those eight lectures was born, this is in 1924, was born, you know, what has come to be known as biodynamics. It's interesting to me, you know, as a student of biodynamics, that a year after biodynamics, the lectures were given, 
and people really started to practice Steiner's initiative, he passed away. And so Biodynamics um, has had an interesting history in Europe because obviously soon after um, the 20s came on the heels, World War II, which was a really obviously devastating time. And also for people who are practicing biodynamics in Europe, they had to go underground since it was not popular with the Nazis. And a lot of people actually left um, the farms they were living. Some went to England, where it was a little bit safer to be practicing biodynamics. And um, actually some came to the U.S. And in 1938, the Biodynamic uh, Farming Association was actually founded. So People don't realize, yeah, it has a long tradition of being practiced and very quietly in the United States. I would really say that in the last um, five years or more, the biodynamic movement in the U.S. is really growing alongside, in many ways, the permaculture movement, two really strong movements that are offering, I would say, a whole added benefit to the real foundation of organic agriculture. So were we talking about how to maintain the soil, how... Those kinds of principles yeah, so, that he channeled? Or? I, yeah, I always say to people, you know, first and foremost, be a good organic gardener. You know, understand. And in, in, you know, in my new book, I wrote a whole chapter. The second chapter is on the foundations of, it's an introduction to biodynamics. Because I really wanted just, a, you know, the regular gardeners to be able to, like, go, you know, what is biodynamics about? I really wanted to encourage herbalists to have some association with biodynamics. And I was really honored. C.R. Lon, you know, who's the founder of Fedco Seeds, he gave yes. me a great compliment when he said, I think you've really translated, you know, a very difficult subject and made it really accessible to just common gardeners, the common person who has an interest in plants, herbalists who have an interest in biodynamics, and that was what I really wanted to do. So saying that, you know, soil is really key to biodynamics, you know, and I think it's, there are many, many common overlaps between organic people and biodynamics, soil being one of those. How we care, how we care for the soil is going to grow vibrant, healthy plants. So that was absolutely answered in in this wonderful book her new book how to move like a gardener planting and preparing medicines from plants and we go into uh, learned all about biodynamics learned about some specific techniques for soil maintenance and and nourishment and i know we're going to definitely have to get into what people can do to uh go and plant and harvest and work with the seasons. I definitely want to talk about that a little bit. And you go into that in, in great detail. Yeah. So that was my next question. What makes biodynamics different than organic gardening? And what you're saying is that they really are mutual and, and part of a continuum. They are con part of a continuum. And I, and I think that to really, to first be a really good organic gardener, you know, and, and there's so much... Way, so many ways for people to really come to um, practice good organic gardening practices. And, you know, for us here in Maine, which I like to say to people is that that we are, one, so fortunate to be here with MAFCA. And MAFCA is actually the second oldest organic farming organization in the United States. Most people don't know that, even those of us here in Maine. And the first is the Biodynamic Organization. So they really, oh yeah, so they really have a, a lovely connection. And I'm actually going to be working with MAFCA, we're actually going to collaborate on a year-long biodynamic training program together, which I'm very excited about because these two organizations have really rooted good organic farming practices. And then 
I say to biodynamics, there's, you know, there is a spiritual component, which people, I think, until more recently have not really had language to describe what do we what do we mean by a spiritual farming practice? And if you, you know, if you do we mean? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and, and I think in our culture, this idea when you start talking about spirit, some people get, get nervous. nervous or, yeah. or what are you talking about? But yeah. but what is that? <laughs> well, I can say for myself what it's meant for me. And I, and yes. I try to describe that in the book. Um, and actually, I would say that my earliest understanding of what do we mean by kind of a spiritual practice in farming really came from observing Masanobu Fukuoka, who wrote the classic book One Star Revolution. And he obviously was a well known and beloved Japanese farmer who in the in 1982 I actually spent three days um, with him and that was and I write about it in in the book that was my first real experience of observing a farmer who I felt like brought a tremendous just presence to every single activity he did whether it was you know weeding and he did, he you know his method of farming didn't include the same kind of weeding that we think of today but Everything, every activity that he did on his farm had a great intention and a great presence. And that, myself, having just lived two years prior in Nepal, and I was living um, in and around a lot of Tibetan Buddhists and listening to a lot of teachings, I, when I was observing him, I realized, wow, he's bringing presence to his farming activities. And that's possible for any of us. It doesn't no matter what our spiritual or our religious leanings might be towards, you know, that the act of really bringing one's presence and really being aware of the seasonal rhythms. That's another strong component in biodynamics, I think much stronger than just organic gardening because we're working with a calendar that really helps us understand in great detail the rhythm of the moon, the rhythm of the seasons, and actually the different elements, you know, earth, air, fire, and water, and how that comes into play with the movement of the moon and what particular seeds and parts of plants that we're planting. I did want to talk about that a a, a little bit because that was so, it is so fascinating and it makes so much sense. So what happens in spring in terms of how you're, other than the obvious, it's time for seeds to happen, um, what are you bringing and and thinking about as a biodynamic farmer? So... And we'll go through all the seasons. Yeah, we go through the seasons. So obviously, both for you and I, you know, I'm thinking of you from the traditional Chinese medicine perspective, which I did bring that perspective into the book because it's so beautiful and so, I think it's so tangible for most of us. So in spring, obviously, there's this rising up energy, you know, no, no matter who we are, from what tradition we get that, you know, especially in New England, especially in Maine, there's a waking up, we can feel it, we can smell it, we can see the buds swelling, we see all those sleeping perennials and, you know, starting to send up their little noses through, you know, through the ground. So there's a real a rising up of energy. And for me, as a, as a biodynamic gardener, what I'm very aware of is that soil is waking up, the organisms in the soil are waking up, and I want to be using one of the biodynamic preparations, which we call the BD500, which a lot of people have heard, you know, it's it's fresh cow manure put in cow horns, buried in the ground and in the end of September, and for us it goes through, really we keep it buried until probably about June, and then we unbury those cow horns and there's this beautiful compost. Wow. I know it's an amazing process. So, and I keep the the BD five hundred, which is very much like compost. I keep it in a glass jar in a very special box in a 
place in our barn, and that's the first butternut preparation that I spray, usually late April or early May. And I just, I stir, I take a handful, it really looks like a golf ball size of compost, I put it in a crock that I have with three gallons of that water I collect from our pond, and I basically stir it for an hour. And that's, for anybody who understands homeopathy, they can really translate that understanding. We're potentizing through a stirring method, and we're, I use my arm, and I do it late in the afternoon. The BD500 as a soil prep is, spr- is sprayed on the garden at the end of the day when the energy of the day is really is really going back to the soil. So we think about the waxing time of the day is the morning time, and then afternoon to evening is more the waning time. And so we, I stir for an hour, making a vortex back and forth, back and forth. And Steiner said that kind of the energy of the cosmos, and that's another piece that you see in biodynamics that we're not just talking about what's kind of right around us that we can touch we're talking about the influence of all the planets and the stars and the moon and that larger cosmos and he said the stirring activity would really bring the energy of the cosmos into that water we know that water is a carrier of memory and a carrier of life and so the stirring process is really activating the life force in that that composted cow manure with the cosmic energy. And then I just take a clean food-grade plastic bucket and I take a wooden wallpaper brush that I only use for spraying and I walk around the garden, you know, usually between, you know, 6, 7 o'clock and I just sprinkle. In the In the evening. evening. Yeah. And so this is what I do in spring. This is usually like late April or in May, I'll do it once or twice. And I'll just be spreading so this. All the, three, the, all, the, all the beds that you have yes, at Avena. I do. I do everywhere. And people, even, you know, people who are doing much larger farms, actually, and I think this is kind of cool, especially those who have lots of pasture and they're pasturing you know, cows or sheep, they a lot of times people have created on the back of their tractor a way to be spraying the 500 so all of their pastures and their fields can also get it. This sounds if, the ultimate of of uh, experiencing and practicing the connection yeah. of all things. Yes. This it, is, and so there's a great deal of intention as as we uh, approach the growing season. Yeah. And, and this preparation um, is to nourish the soil, to nourish and, soil. To, and to talk about, let's get ready yeah. to grow. And it's really, you know, as we all know, whether you're a good organic gardener or a biodynamic gardener, soil is really the essence. You want to keep that soil alive. And that's, for me, where I feel like organic gardening has done such a good job and is trying to do an even better job. And biodynamics, to me, really adds a whole other element from a really energetic Point of view that you're you're really nourishing the vital forces that are that are in soil, and if you're using good compost, good crop rotations, good cover cropping, all of those good organic gardening practices that you know we all want to be doing, and then you're adding this particular soil prep, it just it's almost like I want to say it adds this amazing, just it's like life force that you can I can feel it. It's palpable, and when people walk onto my farm, they're like what are you doing here? There's something something that I can feel. There's a life force. There's this vitality. And I I really say, you know, I think one of the things is is the biodynamic preparations. Also, you know, I love to sing and I and I do pray, you know, for the for the life of this farm and for the the life of these plants to be as you know as full of life as possible so they can be of benefit in the medicine that we make at Avena. So there's you know, it's a combination of things. Let me just say that you are tuned in, if you just tuned in. This is Healthy Options. You're listening to WERU. 
And I am Rhonda Feynman, and we're in the studio with Deb Sol, founder of Avena Botanicals and author of the Women's Handbook of Healing Herbs and a new book, How to Make Like Move, How to Move Like a Gardener, Planting and Preparing Medicines from Plants. And we're also making a really great uh, garden and great preparations uh, as we do all of this. Tell me, um, it's been a few years. How, are you noticing differences in the crops and the and the botanicals? Well, well, when I moved to the farm where I am, I mean, Avina is almost 30 years oh, old, which is amazing. Happy anniversary. Thank you. And Avina is, I've been at this particular farm for 19 years. And I, when I came to this farm, the first year, um, I did nothing the whole year. Well, I did a lot, which is observe. And that is one of, it's also a very strong component to biodynamics that we really strengthen our observation skills in all ways. You know, the ability to see what we're seeing, to hear, to smell, to taste, to, you know, touch and to feel what's going on here in this garden or in this farm or in my neighborhood, in my community. And so I did that for the first whole year. I didn't even plant anything. I just really watched through a whole, you know, through all four seasons, like what's the movement of the, the sun, the movement of the moon, the movement of the winds and the prevailing winds? How does the water move in this land? What's, you know, I did some soil testing, like what am I working with here? I mean, I have sandy loam, which is a great soil to have to begin with. What are all these stone walls and what's behind these stone walls? And, you know, I just, I began to really let the land and me uh get to know each other a little bit. And you'll see this in most traditional farming settings. They say the most important thing that any gardener or farmer can do is to walk the boundaries of their land. And I really feel that's true. And that was true for me, and it's still true for me. I I walk the boundaries and I walk the borders of these, because now I have a lot of different gardens. I walk them regularly just to get a sense and feel for what's happening here, what's the health of the plants, you know, just what's the movement of the water here. And, and so I did that that whole first year before I even attempted to plant anything. And the first year when um, this old-timer came with his tractor and tilled for me, I, I put f- cover crops. I used buckwheat and I used a peas, oats, and vetch. Again, I didn't even plant anything until fall. And I work with a wonderful garden design uh Heather McCargo, designer who um, lives in Brooksville. She's an amazing designer, and I had so much fun working with her together, you know, saying, this is my intentions, this is what I want to be doing. And that first garden together we designed that has become really the center garden and the central garden that I teach in. So that that whole first year allowed both she and I to be working together with what's the intention here of this garden and how mm-hmm. can we bring forth that dream that I that's living in my heart into manifestation. And I think we did a really great job doing that. And, you know, as the gardens have developed, I was able to finally really name for myself, you know, I wanted to create a garden that was obviously a healing space for visitors to enter into and to feel that, wow, these gardens and the way these gardens have been designed is very healing to people. And I also, you know, really wanted to create a sanctuary garden for pollinators. And then, of course, I wanted to create a living classroom so that that people could come and take herb walks and classes could happen in the garden so people could really understand how to garden, how to work with medicine plants. And I also, of course, wanted to cr- to grow lots of medicine plants for Avena's apothecary. And last year, we harvested by hand 1,800 pounds. 
of medicinal plants, which is a lot of 1,800 pounds. You know, for people growing pumpkins, that's not a lot. But for us growing (laughs) medicinal herbs, that's a lot of medicinal plants. It takes a lot of leaves. A lot of leaves, yeah. And then I wanted to create, you know, a garden that would have unusual plants. So, you know, that's where I have some of the Ayurvedic herbs, some of the traditional Chinese herbs that are growing, a lot of native plants that have ethnobotanical uses, Mm -hmm. and then some of the Northern European herbs and the Mediterranean herbs that are really common to people. So, yeah. So, so, and and becoming biodynamic, how has that shifted in terms of uh, the, the, the crop that you're noticing? So for me, since I since I, when I started that garden 19 years ago, is when I started using the preparations. Oh, so you've so been using So I've been using them for 19 years. So you just got certified. certified and but. I decided to do that. And I think for any of us in Maine who have been longtime right. certified by MOFCA, the transition when the federal government became involved, it was a challenge for a lot of us because MOFCA then had to comply with all these federal regulations. So for all of us, it was a huge learning curve. And there were various times where I was very frustrated by the federal government becoming involved because MAFCA has such strong standards. And and I think MAFCA has really led a lot of the standards throughout the country. We are so lucky in Maine because there are still a lot of states that don't have any certifying agencies in their state. There's a lot of states that don't know anything really about, about how organic to, and how to support gardeners. And when you say the federal government, they were talking about organic standards. Talking about the USDA standards yes, right. that really over, they, you know, they basically became, they set the standard. Where MOFCA, I would say, had a much higher, higher standard. standard. And the Demeter certified the Demeter certification for biodynamics also had, I would say, the highest standard, even higher than MOFCA. And when the whole USDA came into play, I thought, you know what? I just, I, I'm not a fan of the US, these USDA standards. And I thought, why would I even continue to be certified? And I thought, because I want to be able to help people understand what this really means. What is the quality versus industrial organic agriculture? And there is a huge difference. difference. And so I stayed true to my organic certification with MAFCA. And then I went on to become Demeter certified because I wanted to help educate people about biodynamics. And I thought this would be one of the ways that could bring out what we're doing into the public Bring, to raise public awareness a little more, which is also why I included in my book. I wanted just to raise awareness. So, so that's that's a new piece. But you have been doing this all along. I this have is been. what this is what we've been enjoying and being the beneficiary of for all these years. <laughs> yeah. um, if you just tuned in, we are talking to Deb Saul, the founder of Avena Botanicals, author of of a new book, How to Move Like a Gardener: Planting and Preparing Medicines from Plants. And uh, thanks for being here. So we're going through the seasons a little bit and seeing how uh, we need to uh, honor each energy. And so we've gone through the spring. Now we're in the summer. What happens then? In summer. Well, I'll say also just to say in spring is when we usually build one of our compost piles. And so it's nice because you come out of winter, people often have a lot of things that they're either weeding out, cutting back dead stalks. And so spring is a great time to begin building a compost pile. So I do that in spring. And then I move into summer. And one of the other biodynamic preparations that we use is called the BD-501. I mean, they just, I've never asked actually anybody why they have these numbers, Numbers. but they have these numbers, you know, BD stands for biodynamics. (laughs) I'll find out someday. So you would think that there would be some poetic. 
Nick. Uh, <laughs> there probably mystical name, but PD five hundred one. And there it. may be, and I should find out. But the five hundred one is actually a preparation made from ground quartz, and it's it's a silica preparation. And Steiner uh, came to this preparation saying that. Um, it's what happens is we stir it. I actually get up at four thirty in the morning and I stir it like the the compost, you know, the the corn man, the horn, the corn manure, but it's it's ground up quartz and I stir it for an hour in the same way. And then I, there's a picture in my book of us spraying. We put it in a backpack sprayer and just as the sun is rising, so it's usually like around you know five thirty six o'clock in where we are on, on the hillside, is we spray this quartz, this you know potentized. So- Silica. This is minerals. This it's, is, yeah. yeah. And the silica, Steiner's vision of this particular preparation was that it would really support the flowering and fruiting processes. So you don't do it when you first plant your garden because those plants need to root in. You're waiting until plants have rooted in and then you start to spray the silica. And so I usually, one of my summer solstice rituals is I always spray silica at the summer solstice. and But you can even spray silica if you're if you're dealing with fruit trees or like Rosa rugosas or things like that, or like Shazander is one of the, my most favorite Chinese medicinals. I actually love Shazander. I right? love Shazander. It is, it's actually my favorite herb. Oh, I'm so happy to yes, know that. Yes. Well, it's one of it my is. favorite herbs. It goes to uh, all the, it goes to the heart. It goes to all the, the meridians. It It's very nurturing. It's considered an astringent, but it does much more so than too. that. Yes. Well, in my garden, because I'm, you know, propagating Shazandra, mm-hmm. it flowers early June. And that would be a time I've begun to think about spraying silica. So you want to, you, you want to spray it on, you know, a lot of our fruiting crops when they're starting to flower, because that's going to support the flowering process and then the fruiting process. And then you could spray again later in the season with the silica, again, to really support the fruiting mm. process. So you never do it in the spring. You really wait, you know, for us, I mean, June is really, shall we say, early, we're in early summer, mm. but it might sometimes still feel like yeah. spring, but that's, you would really be waiting. And like when I transplant a thousand calendula seedlings, usually early June, I'll wait you know, those three weeks until the summer solstice, and then I'll spray the silica to support their flowering process. But I don't want to be spraying silica just after I've transplanted a seedling. That seedling needs to root because it needs to root downward because the silica then, of course, its energy is about upward towards the sun. So it's again, it's about the movement of energy depending on the season and also depending on, you know, the particular moon rhythm. Like we all know that the moon is a waxing moon, you know, from the fu- from the Rising. new moon to the full moon. And then there's the energy that's w- it's waning from the full moon back to the new moon. So I also work with that rhythm when I'm spraying. So I'm spraying during the waxing moon phase, the silica, because I'm really, Move it's an up. upward movement. And I choose the, the waning moon phase when I'm doing the soil preparations, because again, I'm trying to bring that energy down. So really in summer... The silica is one that we're spraying. And I would say for, for folks who are, you know, creating a new garden and they may um, want to be working with the compost preparations and the, the BD500, the soil prep, they also can buy something called the Pfeiffer Field Spray, um, which contains all of those. And that's something that for people who are interested, but they, you know, maybe are like, well, what could I do first off? That particular field spray, the Pfeiffer field spray will give them both both the compost preparations, which are six, which we can talk about, and the 500, which is a soil prep. And so they're really nourishing their soil 
by both, and particularly for people who may not be making their own compost, but they might be buying compost. There are six medicinal herbs that actually, when I first build my compost, you know, in the spring and then again late summer, I put them in and, and I, you know, I write about that in the book, but it, they're common medicinal plants. It's yarrow and chamomile and nettle leaf and the dandelion flowers and the oak of the white oak bark, the bark of the white oak, and valerian flowers. But each of those, Steiner gave very specific instructions about how they're made. And each of them has something very specific that they do to help enhance the composting process. So you you can either make them, you know, there are some that we make on our farm, and then there are some that we buy, because there's a few different organizations that will sell, you know, all the compost, all the biodynamic preparations. And I I write about that in my book, but those we put into the compost pile um, as, you know, as after I first made it. And so it enhances the whole composting process. Are you potentizing as it were? Those or well, how do you? They're, ma- they're made, each of them is made in different ways and it's a little complicated to talk mm-hmm. about. I, yes. I talk about a little bit in the book, it's, but they are already, they're, they're basically, when you were to buy them, they look like little composted herbs. So they've okay. gone through processes and that's what you then put into your compost pile. And then as the pile is... You insert them? Yes, you insert them. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that's another really common practice in biodynamics that that helps to further enhance the composting process with these six different herbs that add minerals and add different processes to support, you know, then, of course, when we apply the compost to the soil... It you're has. Adding, a, you're adding another whole process that's gone on. A level of essence and a lesson. Yes. A level. Yeah. And that can happen throughout the season, or so do you do that you c- in the spring as well, or so at when different I, times. When I build a pile, I, I build an, a spring pile, and I build usually a late summer pile. But but the plying of compost, you know, it depends on. I mean, usually the compost pile that I build um, in the spring is like the one I built last spring. Is we're going to be using it now? Now, you know, we're using well, it in, you know, we're using it in May and June. Is. Yeah, May and mm-hmm. June. You know, I mean, and even if people start their gardens in April, you know, you can get into your gardens if you if you had a winter that could do that. So, you know, the application of compost is something that we're doing a lot in April, May, even into June. If we're again, there's a new bed that we might be preparing, or we might be composting some fruit trees or something we haven't gotten to. You know, I like to. Mostly I like to do fruit trees earlier in the spring. But again, you know, people have to be generous with themselves. Like, do your best. Better to apply compost anytime than not at all. (laughs) That's what I say to people. And I think we say that that's true of anything. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So have a little ease, even yeah, though we're, we're even though th- this that Deb's uh, wonderful new book, "How to Move Like a Gardener: Planting and Preparing Med- uh, Medicines from Plants," goes into great detail yeah. about this. But you're also giving uh, very uh, lovely uh, reminders to to go easy with yeah. yourself and to to be learning and and allow things and, to open and, and express themselves as needed as um, needed and to laugh good. a lot and I said that you know in the in one of the sections I did a sidebar there's lots of sidebars, sidebars. yeah with fun recipes and things and one of them is about additional gardening practices and I said you know leap and laugh a lot in your garden you know because we all make mistakes and we all you know I think for me having grown up in Maine you know I have that I can have that energy where I can really beat myself up if I've done something wrong. And I hope if anything, the older that I'm, you know, I'm getting that I can just end up rolling on the ground in laughter instead of, you know, beating myself up because 
Right. Yeah, life is short. <laughs> there, that's right, right. And there's another medicinal plant. First, we can do some chamomile and yes. have a little bit, a little schizandra, right? Yes. And things to calm the spirit. Yes, and, and nourish the heart. <laughs> yes, move on. Yes. <laughs> right. So, so all of this is happening at very specific times. And do you harvest at uh, different, at specific yeah. times of the month as well? Or? We do. And I, one of the whole chapters in the book is kind of on the elemental and energetic association of plant parts. So I go through describing roots and leaves and flowers and seeds. And obviously, traditionally, I think around the planet, you know, herbalists have always dug roots early in the spring as a plant is first just waking up or like dandelion I love to dig dandelion when there's beautiful leaves and roots you know but like comfrey I'll often dig it when the leaves have just poked up so it really depends on what the root is but definitely we dig our roots you know in the spring and then again in the fall once the plants you know are dying back so like ashwagandha which has become a very Mm -hmm. prominent ayurvedic herb that I usually harvest about 100 pounds from our garden every year it's an we can only grow it as an annual here in India, you know, it's a perennial in India, but obviously we're not in India. We're in <laughs> a, a, a weed. Yeah, we're in zone five in Maine. When it's growing, amazing we could grow it at all. It is amazing we can grow it at all. And and so I've been growing that, you know, that particular one for many years. So we wait to harvest it until usually late October. The plant has died back. And the beautiful, one of its common names is winter cherry because the seed pods, you know, the capsules have a red flush on the outside. And I collect my seeds every year. And so once those seeds are collected, then we dig those roots. So again, spring and fall is is root digging time. Whereas, you know, as we move into spring and summer, obviously, we're all about harvesting, collecting, you know, like the nettle, our nettle collections are one of our biggest leaf collectings. And we will collect about 150 pounds kind of in mid-May and making fresh tincture, laying them out to dry. So there's a leaf harvest going on right then. And then, of course, as flowers come on, um, you know, the mullein flowers is another big harvest that we do kind of early to mid-July, and it's an early morning one. I always encourage people to harvest flowers on the early side of the day. If you're going to be tincturing them or putting them in a vegetable glycerin, it's nice to get them when there's a little bit of dew. The the old alchemist said there was medicine in the dew, whereas if you're going to be drying flowers or leaves, you're going to, of course, want to wait till the dew has dried off from them and then collect them. And so I'm most of my collections of leaf and flowers happen in the morning time when the energy is really rising. fresh and rising and those essential oils are really kind of peaking. Because you can see in a garden, you go in the afternoon and often plants are, are a little bit wilted, you know, if it's been a hot, hot day, day. And they, that's a natural response that they do. But I'm interested in the early part of the day the leaves and the flowers when they're really vibrant and not wilting. And then there might be a few things that I may end up collecting either at the end of the day or like mugwort is one. And I learned this from some old Ukrainian herbalists. I collect mugwort when it's flowering actually during the full moon. And Ah. that's in the nighttime. So again, mostly to say, I think, you know, herbalism is so vast and magnificent and herbalists everywhere have always found their own rituals in their own way. So I've, you know, I can share my own experiences and somebody else might say, well, you know, I do it this way because this is how it felt right to me. And I think every, every way that somebody comes, it's true to their own practice. And I'm I'm sure it's probably true for you and your practice that we have to each as an individual do what is true for us as practitioners. 
we get a foundation, though. Yeah. We learn yeah. from people who've done it before, and then yeah. you're in a position yes. and to that's, say, ah, yes. Yes, this is how I was taught in school, as it yep. were. But you know what? This, this is, is this is how my practice is. This yeah. is how my garden will grow. Yes. This is how And that's what I'm And I'm this most... is how the land is too. What yeah. what is my soil telling me? What is my p- position on the earth? Which is not the same as this book I read. Yes. <laughs> but but that gi- gives me a, a a good foundation so I can even know to visualize. Yes. What's to, different of where I am. Yes, and I th- it's beautiful what you said because I think it really is foundation. And I think, you know, for both you and I, we've had amazing teachers in our life. Mm-hmm. I am so grateful. And they give us this amazing foundation. And then they ask of us to go out and start practicing. You know? And you're an amazing <laughs> teacher yourself. This is the Mutual Admiration Society <laughs> here. We're, and everyone listening, you're all amazing too. Yes, it's yes. true. We're, we're all learning am- so much. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, by the way, this is Healthy Options on, on WERU Community Radio. I'm your host, Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking today with Deb Soul, who is a gardener, herbalist, author of the new book, How to Move Like a Gardener, Planting and Preparing Medicines from Plants. She's also the founder of Avena Botanicals. And we're learning all about biodynamic farming and, and the seasonal and cyclical way of, uh, of gathering and growing. You know, and I would be curious, Ron, in your own practice, I've one of the things that just came to, I never read this in a book, but, you know, as I have been kind of doing, you know, gardening and preparing medicines and teaching and seeing clients, kind of all of those together and over many years, I began to really see, particularly in, in the world of women's health, that I think one of the factors that contributes to a variety of challenges for women in um, through their menstruating years into menopause is their lack of connection with their own natural cycles and in relationship to the natural cycles of the world that we, you know, the beautiful natural world that we live yes. in. And no one ever taught me that. I just, I observed it. Like if we could, you know, grow up with that, with those daily rhythms, those seasonal rhythms, the lunar rhythms, just in the fabric of our being, we would be healthier. And I think it's... And, yeah. and, and happier. Well, of course, Definitely. all the the the, the cultural um, situation with how women's energy and history is perceived, unfortunately, not as as powerful uh, powerfully accepted. Maybe we're working on changing that. We have yes. been for years, but yes, what you're saying, I think, is is uh, is very valuable, and we can bring that into how we nurture ourselves yeah. as women, and and you men out there who are listening to, and how you nurture yourselves as 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 men, yeah. because really all of those energies are flow into each other. It's yeah. not it's not a, a really that separate. And yeah. We are. We are all connected. We are. Which is why <laughs> this whole cosmic idea of, of using herbs and potentizing and, and, these, and these substances. So we're making uh, organic plants and we're using cow manure and the soil. And so we need the animals and the soil and, and the vegetable to come together. And, and that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So we've we've gotten through the summer. We're just moving right through the seasons here. <laughs> yes. So the harvest happens in autumn, and but what else? Are you also looking to prepare for the next season? So I tend that? to I tend to build a second compost pile, kind of in August. So I, I like to have two piles, you know, a spring one and a fall one, because obviously 
I need compost in the fall also. So um, we do, like I said, we do, we, it's amazing. We plant about 2,500 calendula seedlings and I do two plantings. I do one or um, I'll start them, the seedlings at the end of April and they'll go out after a real danger of a hard frost. So usually late May, if depending on this, you know, the season and or early June. And then I'll start a second thousand seedlings of calendula in the in my hoop house, usually towards um, late, the latter part of May, and and they'll tend to go out maybe late June, early July. But I like to get them in, you know, late June. So I'll have two, you know, two major cups because I harvest over about three hundred pounds of calendula blossoms. It's really a very one we use a lot of in a lot of preparations. So once once those annual, you know, in the fall, one of the things we're doing, obviously, most gardeners are doing, is we're pulling out the annual leftovers, you know, and we're putting them in our compost piles. And then what I do is those beds, I will put the compost on, and then I'll cover them with straw. And I really like that rhythm because those beds are all ready for me to plant in, in the spring. They've they've already got compost, they've already got straw, so I never leave soil un, um, without any kind of mulch on it. So some people love to put seaweed on their beds in the fall, which is wonderful because there's so much minerals in seaweed. You know, for us, we, we're growing almost three acres. Um, I'm able to, you know, I, I buy from an organic farmer about 120 bales of organic oat straw, and that's what we um, will put on our gardens um, to make sure there's no, we put it in our past, but we also put it on our beds where that have been cleaned up. So there's a lot of cleaning up in the fall, a lot of, you know, bed prep in the fall, shall we say. And also, you know, we're digging roots. Um, we're also harvesting the, the shazander berries we tend to harvest, you know, in September. Elderberries we we collect in September. Trying to think. Yeah, and roots. Those are the and the hawthorn berries. Those are the three the three main berries that we're harvesting is the elderberries, the hawthorn berries, and the shazander berries. And then, you know, we're digging all of our roots. And we're also collecting seed and making sure that our seeds are being stored appropriately, meaning I've labeled them like I know what the seed is, you know, <laughs> and put them in, in, you know, safe places out of direct sunlight. So I, you know, I have a place to store seeds. So yeah, seed collecting, root digging, putting gardens to bed, making sure that beds don't have any soil exposed for the possibility of erosion, because that's what we're really trying to. And we have a lot of swales on one of our hillsides that are very vulnerable. If I didn't leave them, you know, mulch with straw, they would be much more vulnerable to soil erosion. And we don't want soil erosion. So No, you've worked so hard for the <laughs> soil. And then one of the things that I love that we do at Avina, I have a wonderful staff that I work with. And on May Day, we've done this for probably, I don't know, 14, 15 years. Every May Day, we dance the Maypole. And depends on the weather. If it's pouring rain, you know, we, we'll dance it sometime in May. But we kind of really open up our gardening season by dancing the Maypole, which we all know is an ancient Northern European tradition of dancing on the earth and waking the earth up and calling those elemental beings, all the fairies and gnomes and all mm-hmm. those that come help the garden. It's a really fun ritual that we've I done. I the Maypole. Yeah, it's great. And then we've just started doing a ritual on October 31st, which those who follow the Celtic calendar know that it's, it's you know, it's Samhain, which is one of its names. It's also known as Halloween, which kind of, it's kind of been corrupted, shall we say, in a way in, in the West. But we also um, have taken, we have a beautiful little fire circle and the staff all comes out and we actually grow a few different types of uh, sacred tobacco, which we know is a very sacred plant to a lot of indigenous people of the Americas. So, we grow that not um, in any way to, 
usurp that tradition. We grow it as an honoring, as a remembering of the Native people here, and that those who walked this land long before any Europeans had a very, very sacred relationship with the plants, and tobacco is one of those plants. So we grow it and dry it as an honoring for the Native people here, and so we offer that into the fire with our prayers of gratitude for all that has happened in the growing season, and we kind of put the gardens to bed. And sometimes we hang Tibetan prayer flags again around certain trees and the garden, again as a way to honor and say thank you and to let these prayers in the winds go out into the world, again with our prayers, that there be great healing everywhere. And then, of course, in the winter we are... um hibernating. <laughs> yeah, for us, for me, particularly, I mean, I spent three, five winters working on this new book. So that was that was one of the <laughs> things that I, and I did hibernate in a way I kind of had to, anybody who's a writer knows that we have to kind of be quietly focused. So I love to write in the winter. It's a time sometimes that I'll do some class preparation for some of the upcoming classes that I'll be teaching. I'm also so happy to have this book done because this particular winter, which is my first winter in five years not writing a book, I um, I spent a lot more time reading other people's books, which was, I you know, I'm so appreciative of all the amazing access to books that we do have through our libraries and through um, our, our independent bookstores. And I'm a great fan of support really supporting independent bookstores. We need them more than ever. So I like to read in the winter and, and educate myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, we also know that uh, the, that is the time of restoring yes. for ourselves. And, and, and then I like to think of the, uh, that's what, what's happening under all that snow and ice, hopefully. Well, it's interesting. And I want to say about what you said about restorative. And I, you know, I talked about that in my book. And I, I really, for myself, I sleep longer in the winter. And we both know that sleeping is a very important way to restore energy. And yeah, the rhythm, my rhythm of winter is very different than my rhythm of summer. You know, it's very much more inward. I spend a lot more time quiet, quiet. You know, I, I love to cook soups and stews and I'm usually in bed by 8 or 8.30, you know, and at 8.30 in summer is still daylight out there. So That's it's a right. different rhythm in the different seasons, which is beautiful. And right. and the restorative piece, I think, is key for all of us and especially for those of us who, the re, you know, who are full-time gardening and farming, who we have a lot of physical activity in the summer. If we don't rest in winter we won't be able to be as strong and vital in in summer. So we have to mm-hmm. take that time. So what are you finding in um, as as an herbal consultant? Um, what do you notice in different seasons that there's, while everyone has their individual story and their individual situations, are you, are there some herbs that you like to work with mm. specifically in, uh, in different seasons? Yeah. Definitely. And that's a really great question. And I would say that I tend to work a lot more with leaf leaf and flowers kind of in the more warmer months. I mean, I still work with some of the pungent herbs like rosemary and thyme and sage, those Mediterranean herbs, because they're so vitally helpful for respiratory infections. So I do work with those actually, some in fall and winter, but I find myself working a lot more with roots and berries in the wintertime. You know, there's a lot more substance kind of in roots, Mm -hmm. even though obviously we use them all year long, but much more do I use them. I don't find myself drinking root teas 
that much in summer. I find myself really drinking lemon balm and lavender flowers and sacred basil teas, you know, in the yes. in the warmer months. And it's more the heartier root, you know, medicinals that I'll use as, of course, we tend to eat more root crops and heartier foods in winter. So it's very similar in that way. Um, I tend to see a lot more kind of respiratory problems coming up for people as we move into fall and into winter. And I've seen that pattern consistently over many years. Um, and I've treated many people who have had chronic bronchitis moving into pneumonia as the winter comes on. And I always say you need to start treating those vulnerabilities that you may have a pattern, a weakness for yourself, start them in the season before, which is really something that I really gained from traditional Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. Don't wait until you're in that season, already in that condition. Start strengthening and supporting yourself. Exactly. Treat your allergies in in the the winter, amongst other things. Yes. So are you, when do you choose to use, uh, do you tend to tincture a lot or dry? What's... So it's a great question. And when I was, when I started Avena, you know, almost 30 years ago, I was just, it was just myself. And I very early on realized that I would not be able to, as one person, grow and dry and provide enough herbal teas for the community people that were asking at that time. And when you think about 29 years ago, it's very different than today. There was almost no organic medicinal herbs on the market, either dried or tinctured or salves or oils or anything. It was very much, you know, you, we would see kind of individuals making a few things, but I really had a student come to me and say, you know, I was using this particular herb and it did nothing. And I went, that's not right. There's something wrong here. And that's when I really began to think about providing to my community, you know, access to medicine plants that I could, as one person, grow. And that's how I came to tincture, because I realized there's a lot more availability in making, you know, a pound of an herb in a tincture than necessarily growing a pound of an herb. Like, for example, eight pounds of calendula blossoms dry to one pound dried. Okay. That's a lot. That's a big difference. So, so, and I also began to think a lot about um, what would be easily accessible to people. You know, a tincture for, not that I, I mean, I'm a big fan of teas, but I'm also a fan of helping people who are in acute situations have something that's easy for them to take, which tinctures are. I'm also a fan of tinctures in the sense that, so for first aid, for acute situations, sometimes for people who are, who have a long-term chronic condition where they're, they themselves are weakened and they don't have the energy necessarily to every day be brewing these teas or whatever. Right. The liquid sometimes can be helpful for them. And also for some herbs, that, that bioavailability that's in an appropriately made tincture, like knowing what the appropriate amount of alcohol to water is, which I've studied for years and years and years. So I know that... The, the medicinal qualities that I'm looking for in a liquid can easily, you know, will easily come into that particular liquid. So there were a lot of reasons why, you know, I started to make tinctures. And we, you know, we do grow a number of herbs that we dry and we make some um, beautiful teas. And I'm a great fan of encouraging people, which is why I wrote my book, to be growing and drying and making their own teas and really having fun with a mixing and matching mm-hmm. of herbs. And then also it's really, really fun to be, 
you know, learning how to make oils and, and salves. And which is why, you know, on Avina's website, we have a little blog. And over the last two years, we have with our wonderful little iPad made a number of dozens of different little um, teachings of me in the garden talking about how to grow and how to harvest and how how to use individual herbs for medicine and that was really fun it's continues we continue to do but really fun for me to actually you know have a visual way for people to be learning oh this is what calendula looks like or this is how you harvest it and that's how I also Mm -hmm. came you know we're just about to launch the grow a row project um, we should, on, we should, we should yeah, definitely, yeah. let me just say, we definitely want to talk about that too. Um, by the way, if you just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to WERU Community Radio. This is Healthy Options. And I am so happy to have Deb Saul, the founder of Avena Botanicals and author of the uh, Women's Handbook of Healing Herbs and a new book, How to Move Like a Gardener, Planting and Preparing Medicines from Plants here in the studio. And we are discussing all sorts of wonderful things about herbs and biodynamics. And tell us about your new project. Yeah, so about, um, probably about six or seven years ago, I was, somebody was reading to me from the New York Times a piece about Eve Ensler's work in the Congo. And I remember, I just, I remember this so clearly, I just wept. Because the article was describing, as many of us are aware, of the incredible violence being done to women in the Congo region, still being done to women in the Congo region. It's it's a mm. worldwide problem, and we know that. And I just rem- I just wept, and I thought I want to do something, to as you know I'm just a you know an individual woman here living in Maine. What is it that I could do to respond? And I said, grow a row. <laughs> it just kind of came out of me. It was one of those moments, you know, when we have a visionary moment. And I thought calendula is such a very powerful healing herb for all kinds of wounds, no matter what, when I say that, you know, whether it's actually been a cut, if there's been stitching that's gone onto a wound and calendula will help in the healing process, it helps prevent scarring. It's a fantastic oil for any kind of tender breast tissue, you know, helping to support lymphatic circulation. Calendula also is a very important herb to use as an oil or a suppository, you know, to help heal vag- vaginal tissue that's in any way has been traumatized and or has any kind of infection. So I thought calendula makes sense to be teaching people how to grow a row of calendula. So that project I kind of had a vision for, and as Avina um, spent about five or six years having to comply with all the FDA regulations, I thought, okay, I'm going to put this project here, it's in my heart, and I'm going to work with the FDA, get through all those FDA regulations, which we did, and then I'm going to really launch this Grow Row project. So it's just been newly launched. I describe it in the back of the book. I created a new website for the book. It's called movelikeagardener.com, and in this particular um, website, we are soon to post a video of describing, you know, calendula, how to grow it, how to harvest it. And I actually, um, we videotaped me making calendula oil, making calendula salve. And really, you know, the, the vision is as a grassroots project for herbalists and gardeners everywhere to be growing a row of calendula, harvesting it and drying it, and then either passing it on to their local or their county project working with um, domestic violence and to also, they can pull off the website. I wrote all these. What is the website? It's movelikeagardener.com. Oh, it is? Yes. You just said that. Yes. <laughs> and and they can actually 
pull-off, it's totally uh, av- going to be available. It's going to go up in the next month. It'll be up. Great. Um, so, you know, listeners, I think, will be able to go on and f- pull off any PDF files they want to, uh, and they can take the information to, you know, their county uh, domestic violence project so that they can say, we w- if they're interested, we, we would like to donate tea, we would like to donate salve or oil that we've made. And to me, it's raising mm. awareness both in our local communities about domestic violence. It's also allowing gardeners and herbalists as a way to have a direct relationship and to be able to grow and prepare uh, salves and oils or teas that we know to have a direct benefit for for any woman or child who has in any way experienced battering that will help to bring healing to those wounds and, and to bring plants to them so really so you this is this is the whole the whole picture yeah right there and it really was inspired Beautiful. by the work of you know Eve Ensler's work in the Congo I thought women this is something women and men in communities you know I think so many of us want to be of help in some way and this is this is like something simple it's not it doesn't have to be a big deal to to do something in our community to be of help yeah Thank you so much. I'm, I think we're going to have to end there, unfortunately, because we could, of course, you'll have to come back. Please I'll do. definitely come back. Definitely come back. Um, you have been listening to Healthy Options on WERU. Our guest today has been Deb Saul, herbalist, gardener, author, and teacher. She, of course, is the founder of Avena Botanicals and is the author of the new book, How to Move Like a Gardener, Planting and Preparing Medicines from Plants. If you need more information, you certainly can go to www.avenabotanicals.com. You can also go to Move. The new website the new is, is www.movelikeagardener.com. And absolutely do that. If you've missed any of the show, it'll be archived later on on the Public Affairs Archives at WERU. Again, thank you so much, Deb Soul, for being here. Thank you, Amy Brown, for helping us, and uh, Engineer, and Petra Hall for her production assistance. I'm Rhonda Feynman, wishing you the best of health. So thank you. Thank you.